Next on ReachMD, Voices from American Medicine, featuring perspectives, challenges, and triumphs from physicians currently in practice in the front lines of healthcare. Now here is the host of Voices from American Medicine, Gary Epstein. There are still millions of people living in rural communities across this nation. The healthcare challenges and needs faced by those in these communities are unique and often go unmet. Joining me on Voices from American Medicine is a doctor who practices as a single provider in a small New England town. Dr. Douglas Gerard has no other practitioner help, no PAs or NPs, as he practices care to over 6,000 inhabitants of New Hartford, Connecticut. And you know what? He wouldn't have it any other way. He enjoys the lifestyle and the balance in a small rural practice. Dr. Gerard, welcome to Voices from American Medicine. My pleasure. It's great to have you. Is it safe if I call you a country doctor? I guess you could say that, yes. New Hartford is located about 20 miles west of Hartford, Connecticut. It's up in the hills of Connecticut, the northwest corner. I guess you could call it the country. There's plenty of open land. The smallest building lots are two acres with plenty of open space around. So it's certainly the country. I grew up on Long Island, and my in-laws used to come up and think I lived in the middle of the sticks. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about your practice, the kinds of patients that you see in the practice, and how it feels different than what folks might be seeing in a large urban center. I have a very mixed patient population, a lot of white-collar, a lot of blue-collar. I have farmers, and I have executives that go out to work in Hartford. The patient mix is predominantly third-party insurance. There is a fair amount of Medicare, as any internist would see. Minority-wise, very slim in this area, unfortunately. I do not see Medicaid patients, unfortunately, because of poor reimbursement for many years. But uh, other than that, it's a mix as any internist would see. How did you decide to get to this type of practice versus others? What caused you to seek out a more rural-oriented community and practice in the way that you are kind of like a country doctor in the sense that you don't have a big staff and you're really engaged with your patients in a different way? Right. I did my residency and internship at UConn Health Center. And on those few hours I'd get off each week, one of my first things to do would be to get out of town, and my wife and I would often head out to northwest Connecticut to hike a piece of the Appalachian Trail or something like that. And I said, boy, wouldn't this be a beautiful area to practice in? Sure enough, as I left residency, I joined my two partners at that time who had left the year before I did and set up a practice out here, and I joined them. So it's for geographic reasons as well as just the lifestyle. What about it has been sort of unique or special? Do you have memorable patient stories and that you can share at least? Or? There are many memorable patient stories. Uh, I can think of a couple, specifically some new patients that I acquired over the years. Back in my uh, initial years of practice, my partners and I were really the only internists that were doing critical care type medicine at a very small community hospital. And at times in the middle of the night, the person who would be covering the ER would be an orthopedic resident who wasn't probably the most comfortable person to be taking care of cardiac cases that came in. In fact, I can remember at times the police chief would bring a cardiogram to my door in the middle of the night and say, hey, what do you think of this? And I'd wander down there and, oh, hey, Jerry, how are you? And I'd read the cardiogram. Well, it was one night where I got a call that was a patient coding in the ER. And I, as I would do at that time, I jumped up, put my clothes on, got my car, and we could say, I guess it's safe to say at this time, broke many speed limits in getting to the hospital, <laughs> including red lights and things like that. Well, unfortunately, in a road nearby me, a cat ran out in front of me, and I hit this cat. Well, because of what was going on in the hospital, I couldn't stop looking at the cat. Went to the hospital, stabilized the patient. On my way home at 3 o'clock in the morning, looked all over for the cat and couldn't find it. Said, oh, boy, this is not going to be good. Next morning, I'd gotten up, and going back to the hospital for rounds, 
noticed there was a woman sitting in the back of a hatchback car in front of me. And she looked kind of old to be sitting in the back of a hatchback. I wasn't a kid at that time. I noticed she was looking in a box. I said, uh-oh, I'll bet I know what's in that box. I followed her down to the main street, turned left, and went to the local veterinary hospital. And sure enough, she pulled in there. I got out of the car and I said, you don't have a cat in that box, do you? She says, yes, it was injured. I had to confess at that time that I hit the cat, told her the circumstances, and apologized. Subsequently learned that the cat had to be euthanized. Well, years later, I'm sitting in my exam room, and there was a new patient sitting in front of me. And I said, so how would you come to find our office? And I was trying to find out where she was referred from. She says, well, many years ago, you ran over my cat. And I, and I thought you were very sympathetic at that time. So I said, well, do you have any more animals you want me to run over? <laughs> Those are the kind of stories you get in a small town. Well, and I think it sounds like you really get to engage and get to know your patients, both when, I guess, they're sick as well as healthy. I imagine that's one of the things you enjoy most about the practice. Patients are friends and neighbors in my practice, many neighbors. In fact, just this morning, I had two people live in my street coming to my practice, trying to keep them separate and HIPAA violation material. It's interesting. <laughs> yeah. But I was looking and said, well, we just should have had a van come down here from my street and bring everybody down. And what happens when the practice actually gets full? There are times I've had to turn away patients, and it goes through cycles. When you realize that the next routine physical one-hour appointment in the morning is next December, it's time to stop taking new patients for a while. It's not fair to have your practice so busy that you can't spend the time that patients have come to expect over the years and you spend with them. I don't see patients every five minutes. I only see one patient at a time. I use one exam room. I don't have two exam rooms. As you mentioned in the beginning, there are no other TAs or nurse practitioners or anything with me. So at times you have to turn away patients, and at times you can take them on an individual basis. And you mentioned earlier that because of the situation with Medicaid, you don't see Medicaid patients. What do those patients do in your community? There are other providers in a neighboring town that do take Medicaid, although that's becoming more and more difficult to find as well. There is a community health clinic in the next smallest city nearby, which is about 10, 15 miles from my office, and they do see that too. And Obviously, those doctors are funded by federal dollars. They don't have the same pressures that you face in an individual practice. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Voices from American Medicine on ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Gary Epstein, and joining me today from New Hartford, Connecticut, primary care physician, Dr. Douglas Gerard. Dr. Gerard, I imagine that you have to have kind of a unique and special relationship with um, sort of regional healthcare community as you're almost air trafficking patients to specialists and those in the community hospital. Tell us a little bit about that kind of interaction. When I first went to practice, there was a small hospital located just a few miles from my home. And that, unfortunately, because of reductions in total inpatient population, due to changes in technology, insurance pressures, things like that, that hospital eventually closed. We then had our patients go down to, to the uh, next closest hospital. And that hospital was more of a travel for me. There were subspecialists on the staff at that time. There was a cardiologist there when we first started using the hospital, and now there are several, both very competent cardiologists. There's gastroenterologists, there's hematology oncology team. So those support services are available. I use the hospital system there. That allows me to spend more time in my office. It certainly makes me more productive and reduces some of the hassles that many other doctors in the area actually found could tend to want to push out of practice. I cover myself in the evenings, at a term 24-7, 
And in fact, the only time I have any other physician cover me is when I'm out of the country or I'm going to be away from the office for several days on end. It's so interesting. I'd love to get your perspective on this trend towards concierge medicine, because in many respects, you are practicing very much like those kinds of doctors. And yet I imagine the way that you charge for services is very different. It's funny you should bring that up because I just got an invitation last week to go down to a meeting on a hybrid concierge practice model. <laughs> and I went to their website and read about it, and I looked at it, and I said, this is everything I'm doing now. One hour with a patient. Patients can call you after hours, although they usually don't. It's only you that they get to speak to. I said, wow, wouldn't it be nice to be reimbursed as a concierge doctor for what I'm doing already? The concierge model, unfortunately, when you take a doctor who has over 2,000 patients, requires you to whittle it down to five or 600 patients at max. What happens to those other 1,500 patients that have been my patients for 25 years? They have nowhere to go. It's just not fair. It's not morally proper to just discharge them because you want to have a better lifestyle and make more money. Well, and it's interesting that you're able to accommodate, and I imagine it certainly makes a, a 24-7 kind of work life, but it's interesting you're able to accommodate as many patients as you do. You haven't whittled it down, and you're still managing to provide that kind of care. I also have plenty of time myself. I could continue doing what I'm doing for a long period of time. Have medical, electronic medical records played into the practice, and how have you integrated that? Electronic medical records are not in my practice right now. Certainly, we have been e-prescribing for a couple of years now to avoid any of the penalties associated with not doing so. Probably the major thing that I did in my practice that enabled me to stay in practice was to join a primary care group that comes out of Hartford, the known as Collins Medical. Back in 1996, when my second of two partners was getting ready to move to Tennessee for a different practice opportunity, I was approached by Collins Medical, which is associated with a large hospital in Hartford, St. Francis Hospital, and at that point became part of their group. They purchased my assets and I became an employee of them. Our business model has changed over the subsequent couple of years, but at this point, essentially it leaves me as the sole practitioner in my office with three part-time employees, and Collins takes care of my accounts payable, receivable, contracting, employee benefits, payroll, all that type of thing. It's an eat-what-you-kill type business model. So if I want to have 10 employees, that's okay. I just won't have anything left over to help pay my mortgage. When you have the kind of practice that you do in serving in the community, I understand you use medical school precepts. Talk a little bit about the role of those. I've kept myself associated with UConn Health Center, since that's where I did internship and residency, as a, uh, I think at this point, they consider me an assistant clinical professor, although I never actually have to really go to the health center. But what I do is I have a medical student who comes and sees me one afternoon per week during their entire academic year. This is a longitudinal program. It starts with their first year of medical school and continues through their third year. They don't have this program in the fourth year since they're doing their clinical rotations. So I have now had a couple of students come through my practice over the past decade, and I now have a first-year student I see in Wednesday afternoons and a third-year student who I see in Thursday afternoons. They come out here, and depending upon their abilities and where they are in terms of what they've learned in physical exam and history taking, see patients along with me. Often they'll see the patient first, then I'll go in the room afterwards and see the patient with them. It certainly cuts down on my productivity, but it increases the enjoyment I get out of practice. It keeps the excitement there. It keeps me on my toes, makes me read and keep up on exam technique, and they, certainly they benefit from it as well.
Absolutely. I imagine you had the opportunity to inspire them to look at a practice similar to yours. And Have any gone on to practice in more rural uh, I've tried. Let's see, the first student I had actually did medicine residency for a year and is now in a neurology residency in Manhattan. The second student that I had has now decided to go on to surgery. He was actually a surgeon before in China and uh, came here and had to do his MD all over again. So he decided to continue and stay in the surgical field. I'm trying my best on my next two students to see if I can get them to come into primary care medicine. Now, I understand you also play a role in the Litchfield County Medical Association. I know they're the oldest in the country. Tell us a little bit about your role there. Litchfield County Medical Association, as you said, is the oldest in the country. It's a quiet county medical association. Our records go way back. In fact, some of our old historical documents talk about doctors taking horses to get across the county to come to the meeting. It's quiet. I think there's probably a fair amount of interest in our county medical association, but a lot of apathy as well. There are eight counties in Connecticut, in our corner as well as the other far northeast corner, both very quiet counties, which is good. I work my way up to be president simply by default because you work your way up through secretary, treasurer, vice president, and then eventually president. My term ends this year. I will continue first uh, as immediate past president. I also hold a counselor position at the Connecticut State Medical Society, which is similar to a board of directors position. It's a leadership position. There are two counselors from each county appointed to the counselorship, and we help steer the County Medical Association along its way. Dr. Gerard, we have a huge following among medical students and residents on the channel. They're very loyal listeners, and if you had the opportunity to kind of talk to them as you do by virtue of being on the channel, what would you tell them about considering a career in primary care medicine? I think the value of primary care medicine over some of the other specialties is a longitudinal relationship you develop with a patient. I found myself enjoying emergency room medicine and some of the other more intense specialties, things that include procedures. But I always found myself trying to look for the follow-up, especially after someone you saw in the ER who was admitted, say, whatever happened to that guy? And you'd, you'd wander up to the medical floor a day later and try to find them. At that point, I realized was internal medicine was a thing to do, and primary care in general. certainly have opportunity as an internist, but there are other ways to do primary care, especially as pediatrics or failing practice, that type of thing. I'd like to thank my guest today, Dr. Douglas Gerard, a primary care physician in solo practice in rural New Hartford, Connecticut. I'd also like to thank the Connecticut State Medical Society for nominating Dr. Gerard to be interviewed today. Dr. Gerard, thanks so much for being a guest on Voices from American Medicine. All my pleasure. You've been listening to Voices from American Medicine on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals, featuring perspectives, challenges, and triumphs from physicians currently in practice on the front lines of healthcare. Voices from American Medicine is hosted by Gary Epstein.